On our kitchen table where Lynn and I share breakfast together most mornings is a little plastic box shaped like a loaf of bread. And in the top of that box is a, a slot that holds 30 or 40 little pieces of cardboard on which is written scripture verses. How many of you have a little box of like, uh, you know, yeah, you've, you've seen this. Um, the scripture verses are written in King James English, though. This is either because Christian Book Distributors is still trying to sell the last, the few daily bread lows from 1970, or, or perhaps, I suspect, since King James Version is in public domain now, they don't have any copyright issues. They can just make pure profit off of those little loaves of, okay, I, I won't go there. <laughs> So one of the ones, uh, Psalm 17, verse 7, this morning's meditation verse. Thou savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee. How many of you had a little warm place in your heart for the King James Version? I see one hand. <laughs> Two, maybe. Thou savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee. So we've got thou, thy, and thee, all in the same verse. Psalm 17, verse 7. You know, I don't know about you, but thee, thine, thou, that kind of language always comes across sounding very formal to me. Is that the kind of the way you hear it? Nobody's going to vote on this. I see one hand, right? Okay. Well, come to find out 400 years ago when the King, King James Version was being written, thou, thy, and thee, those pronouns were actually the familiar form of those words. That's the kind of language you would use to speak with your husband or your wife, someone that you loved dearly. It was an informal intimate sort of a, of, a, of a meaning to it. But over the course of four centuries, that has changed. And so now you is the way we would speak to somebody that we loved and that we were familiar with. And thee and thou is something that nobody uses at all, but you might use it if you're speaking very formally. English words change meaning over times. All words change meaning over times. And I don't know why I'm so fascinated with words other than that I'm a preacher, but uh, once again, this past week, I got thinking about the changing nature of words, the definitions of words. So, for instance, the word decimate. What comes to mind when you hear the word decimate? Total destruction, right? Well, come to find out its original meaning meant to kill one in every ten. How kind and gracious, only to kill ten percent. The word nice, how do we use the word nice these days? It's, it's a compliment, right? You're a nice person. You feel good if I say you're nice. Well, originally it meant silly or foolish. So next time I say you're nice, you're going to have to wonder. I wonder what meaning he's using. How about the word naughty? Naughty. 
Naughty means badly behaved, right? But originally, it meant having naught, having nothing. The word naughty. Now, Bible words also change meaning. So, in the New International Version, you don't read thy and thou and those kind of words. We've replaced those with you. Translations are constantly updating the English so that it, it means today what it means or what it meant, hopefully, back when the, the Bible was first written. And why is this important to have the right modern meaning connected with the right ancient meaning? Why is that important? Well, the Bible is the Bible, right? The Bible is the revelation of God. It's the truth that that forms and shapes our lives. If, if we don't have an understanding, a proper understanding of what the words of the Bible mean, we, no, no, you know, no idea where we might end up following words that don't mean what they used to mean. It's a formative book in our lives. Therefore, it's important to have a, a proper understanding of the original meaning. So let's take a look now. We're gonna be in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five, if you wanna begin turning there. The Beatitudes are perhaps one of the most beloved, most familiar passages of Scripture, right? It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that great teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples and thousands of others. And the Beatitudes in particular, beginning that great sermon, are perhaps contain some of the most important words and phrases in the New Testament. In them, Jesus is laying out the foundational qualities of the kingdom of God. And what did Jesus come to proclaim? The kingdom of God. What is this new reality that's breaking out in the person of Jesus and would break out among us in its fullness on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is, is, is released into the, into the church? The, the kingdom of God is, is the most important thing Jesus was talking about, the most important thing that Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples, the foundational qualities not only of, of what's going on afterward, you know, often the distant future when we go to heaven, but heaven is here among us, right? Heaven is breaking out, and Jesus is saying, here are the qualities of the people who make up the kingdom. Does that seem important to you? I say, you know, by show of upraised hand, does that, that seem like it might be an important thing to, to know the words, know the vocabulary, understand what it means? Yes, absolutely. So among the several Beatitudes in verse 5, we find this. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Sorry, I, I changed the vocabulary completely. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, before we get to the meekness part of this, let's talk about what it means to inherit the earth. It's an allusion, a reference to several different important stories in Scripture. The first one being the very first story, the story of creation, in which God commissions Adam and Eve to do what? 
the human race, Adam and Eve, they are to rule and subdue. They were to fill the earth and rule and subdue the earth. So inherit the earth means in part this commission given to the entire human race that we would be God's partners in ruling and subduing the earth. We could take a tangent here and talk about what the word subdue means because I think we've completely misunderstood that. But let's just stick with the... the, the, the. So the first illusion in this beatitude is reminding us of what God created the human race to do and to be. The second illusion is to the promised land. God asked Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery to the promised land. Joshua was the one that took them into the promised land. And remember what happened when they arrived in the promised land. The land was divided among the 12 tribes of Israel. Each tribe, each family, each clan had land that was going to be theirs in perpetuity. So when Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth, what he's also reminding people of is that God is giving this to you. This is your inheritance. It will stay with you and your family forever and forever. Now, those two things, the commission to Adam and Eve and the promised land being divided, are forerunners or, or metaphors of something that Jesus would make plain, and that is eternal life, the kingdom of heaven. What started off in the Garden of Eden, what was then elaborated on in the promised land, becomes what Jesus says, that you are part of the kingdom of God. You are part of the people who share eternal life. I, I don't know about you, but I'm getting excited. <laughs> Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the job description of partners with God in ruling and subduing this kingdom. They will be people who God will give this kingdom to. They will own it under God's lordship. They will be stewards of the land, of the kingdom. And it will be a quality of life that becomes part of the way they live. It will become the way they live. You have eternal life, which is this kingdom life. I'm not doing a good job, otherwise I'd be hearing more woo-hoos, but this excites me. <laughs> Thank you. But Jesus says the, the quality or the virtue that's required of those who would live in this eternal kingdom is meekness. Okay. What does the word meek or meekness bring to mind for you? Quietness? Reserve? Gentleness? Not aggressive? Humble? Casper milk toast? Spineless? Weak? Oh, you guys are so spiritual just completely ruined my sermon. Well, okay, then only for me, of all of the human beings that speak English, meekness is one of those words that I, I, I'm, I'm not aspiring necessarily to be meek because 
growing up meekness in my vocabulary and my family among my friends, I'm not sure who you were hanging out with, but meekness was not a quality that people wanted. Meekness is the person that never speaks up. Meekness is the person you're not quite sure what they stand for because you, you just don't know. They're, they're just a blank slate. At least that's what I thought meekness meant. Come to find out, maybe it means something different. You know, if, if, if people thought meekness was what I thought it meant, I'm not sure any, any of them are clamoring to become a part of this kingdom, right? Who wants to inherit the earth if you have to be that kind of a person? So let's look at the, the Greek word praios, praios which is uh, the word that's translated meekness here. In the New Testament, it means generally one of three things. It means being considerate. It means being teachable and humble. It means being submissive to the will of God or under the control of God. A meek person is one who is considerate of the feelings of others. A, a meek person is one who is teachable and humble, willing to be shaped, particularly submissive to the will of God, under God's control. The examples of how this Greek word was used, it's, it's a wild animal that's been tamed and brought under control. It's medicine that's easy on your stomach, but still strong enough to cure the illness. It's the gentle word that calms an argument and brings peace. It's a powerful ruler who is also benevolent. That's what praeus means in Greek. Now, Aristotle, one of the most famous Greek philosophers, described virtues such as meekness, described virtues as the mean or the middle, the balance between the excesses of uh, extremes of excess or of absence. So if you've got, for instance, uh, courage. Courage is the mean between recklessness on one hand and cowardice on the other. Cowardice, recklessness, and in the middle is courage, just the right balance between these two extremes. So Aristotle defined meekness as the mean or the middle, the balance between excessive anger and excessive angerlessness. Excessive anger or being completely unangry, the mean, the middle, the best combination of that was what was meekness. Let's talk about anger for a moment. In Ephesians, Paul writes, in your anger, do not sin. Oftentimes we forget that phrase and we just think that anger is a bad thing all the time, right? Anger is a sin, but no. He says it's okay to be angry, but not in such a way as to sin against somebody else. So in other words, there's a kind of anger that's there in the middle between excessive anger or excessive angerlessness. William Barclay, one of my great, uh, one of my favorite uh, Greek scholars, 
wrote, when anger is for our own sake, it is always wrong. If we're angry because of something that somebody did or said to us, especially if it is expressed in excessive anger, he says that's always wrong. When anger is for the sake of others, it is often divinely right. In other words, he says, the, person who, uh, the meek person is the one who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. What does it mean to be meek? It has the, pops, the possibility, the potential of being angry, but not excessively angry. Not angry because you have been offended, but not anger less. Not never angry, but instead angry at the right time. Now, this is a hard balance to achieve, isn't it? this mean between the two extremes. It's a hard balance for us sometimes to achieve. I have to admit, I have a temper. My, my, my childhood friends knew it, too, and they knew how to taunt me. They would say, you know, temper, 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 which only made me more angry, right? Maybe you've got a similar issue in your life, maybe not. But it's a hard balance to achieve. Now, the word praeus, which means meek in Matthew chapter 5, in Galatians chapter 5, is translated gentleness. Same word, gentleness. And remember, in chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul is writing about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's writing about divine qualities which become our qualities when we are saved by grace and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. God's qualities that become our qualities. God is meek. God is gentle. God is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. That's a quality of God that now becomes our quality when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, when we are devoted and consecrated to God and to becoming what God wants us to become. So we see these qualities in Jesus' life, don't we? It might be difficult to, to imagine what God the Father and Spirit is doing, but we see God's gentleness, God's meekness in the life of Christ. Jesus' anger was directed at those who should have known better. Right? It's one thing to be angry at somebody because they've been told they know better. And now they continue to do or to say what you told them not to do, what was inappropriate, what was sinful. So Jesus was angry at people like the Pharisees and the chief priests because they should have known better. But Jesus was never angry at those who didn't know better, was he? 
Jesus's anger was directed at those who abused other people, shunning those who were paralyzed or had leprosy or who were blind or who couldn't obey all of the rules and regulations for whatever reason. Jesus was, was angry at those who abused those sorts of people, but Jesus was never angry at those who abused himself, was he? What did Jesus say to those who were responsible for his crucifixion? Father, forgive them, for they, in this case, don't know what they're doing. So how do we see the meekness or gentleness in the image of God displayed? It's in Jesus' anger, directed at those who know better or who were abusing others, not at those who didn't know better or who were abusing him. So this word, meek, gentle, preus, is a key virtue in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean weakness. Aren't you glad I finally got the clue? Thanks for the memo, folks. Thanks for getting there before me. It doesn't mean weakness. Instead, it means strength under God's control. It means power, but under God's control. It means anger at the right time, but under God's control. We might call it righteous indignation with the emphasis on righteous, because it's directed at the right people at the right time in the right way. Now, you apparently don't have any anger management issues. You are so spiritual and mature and, and all that. But <clears throat> So this may not be an issue that you ever have cause to think about, to give much contemplation to. How am I expressing anger? How am I not expressing anger? But this is an issue for me. So I want to uh, share a, a, a revelation that came to me. Um, that might be too strong a word. You know, over the course of my adult life, uh, especially in the last 10 or 12 years or so, I have had the opportunity to take a number of, uh, one might call them, temperament inventories to kind of figure out how I'm wired and what makes me the way I am. Uh, you're probably uh, perhaps most familiar with the Myers-Briggs temperament inventory. It's the extroverts and the introverts. It's the feeling people and it's the, the thinking people. It, it comes under a, a variety of different names and a variety of different formats, but it helps you to understand how you process information and how you get along with people and so on and so forth. Uh, there's the Enneagram, which uh, focuses on the giftedness that we have, but also the besetting sin that often goes along with that giftedness, helping you to see yourself and where the weak points might be. There's a number of these kind of things, but I had never in the course of my 40 years of ministry heard about or received any training or teaching about assertiveness. I wish somebody 40 years ago would have given me a book that taught me about what assertiveness is. Assertiveness is the, the mean between passivity and aggression. 
And come to find out, this past spring, I received five weeks of training for Stephen ministry. And one of the key components of Stephen ministry is assertiveness. There's a, a whole book that those of you that will be trained in Stephen, uh, Stephen ministers will need to read called Speaking the Truth in Love. <clears throat> I would write this down, folks. Speaking the Truth in Love is the name of the book. It's written by Kenneth Haup, who's the, 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 the one who started uh, Stephen ministry back in the 70s. Speaking the truth in love, this assertiveness principle, the mean between passivity and aggression. And they say at the beginning of the book, you might want to find out what kind of a person you are before you read this book. <laughs> so you'll know what parts to pay attention to. So there's this little assessment tool in the back of the book. There's 25 scenarios, brief scenarios, situations that are posed, and then there are three different responses that are offered for each of these 25 scenarios, and you are to decide which one is the way you would respond. How would you react? What would you say? Circle that letter, A, B, or C. And then at the end of this, you, you tabulate how many of A's you had and B's you had and C you had. So here, I'm going to try one out on you. In a discussion or a debate, I, A, am reluctant to speak up or may begin statements with saying, I'm sorry. B, in a discussion or a debate, I respond openly and honestly to what is said. Or C, in a discussion or debate, I think I have to have the only right answer. All right, by show of upraised, upraised hands so that we can all feel equally humiliated, A, I'm reluctant to speak up and may begin statements with, I'm sorry. Go ahead and raise your hand if that's how you would, okay, we've got a few of those kind of people here, right? Uh, B, I respond openly and honestly to what is said. Raise your hand if that's you, all right. And C, I think I have to have the only right answer. All right, so the first answer is the passive response. The second answer is the assertive response. And the third answer is the aggressive response. So I take all 25, I circle them, I count up how many. I, well, come to find out, the 25, I had 12 that were passive responses, 13 that were assertive responses, and zero which were aggressive responses. And truth be told, several of those assertive answers were probably passive. I was just trying to make myself feel better, okay? All right? <laughs> I was not being truthful with myself. Well, here's the connection with meekness and gentleness and preuse. Aggression is an, ex is, is an example of excessive anger, isn't it? Sorry, Emily, but you raised your hand to that third response, so you're... you're <laughs> that was only one of 25 questions, though, so you might have been, you know, anyway. Aggression is excessive anger. It's moving against other people. It's behaving without internal restraints or external limits. It's threatening, intimidating, or abusive language and behavior, facial expressions, gestures, and body language. It includes insults, put-downs, profanity, blaming, sarcasm, 
Passive aggression is a form of aggression. It includes procrastination in order to manipulate other people, pouting, silent treatment, or manipulative tears. Is that making you feel good about yourself, those of you that raised your hand? <laughs> and it's obvious, aggression destroys relationships, doesn't it? If somebody responds to us in an aggressive way that makes us feel belittled or insulted, we're probably not going to spend any more time building a relationship with that person, right? Excessive anger destroys relationships. Passivity, on the other hand, is angerlessness. It's not being angry at the right time. It's not resisting other people. It's giving up something in order to avoid somebody else's displeasure or to gain their approval. It's withdrawing from confrontational situations. It's keeping quiet. It's allowing others to control one's time and schedule and rather than setting your own schedule. Passive behavior leads to the collapse of relationships since it fosters uncertainty about what the other person really feels or is thinking. If, if a passive person is always trying to keep you happy and get along with you, then they're probably not going to say what they really think, right? And consequently, you don't know what they think. You don't know what they're feeling. So it's difficult to have a really good relationship with that person because they're, it's the man behind the curtain. <laughs> So it leads to misunderstandings. Passivity means suppressing your emotions, not letting people see what's really going on in your feelings, which leads to depression, stress, anger management issues, and on and on and on. Oh, man, when I read that, I said, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Why didn't somebody talk to me about this 40 years ago? Three times in the course of my 40-year-long ministry, I have spent months in burnout depression, sitting at my desk weeping because I couldn't bring myself to do anything because I was just depressed. Praise God for counselors. Praise God for people that began to help me understand what was going on. But that's part of what happens when we live life as a passive person, stuffing everything inside. So we've got aggression, excessive anger, and passivity, no anger at all, at least that we're expressing outwardly. And the mean between those two is assertiveness. Assertiveness means honoring and valuing both yourself and other people. It means standing up for one's rights as well as the rights of other people. Genuinely expressing one's emotions. Able to say yes or no at the appropriate time. How many of us say yes all the time? even if it means our lives are going to be crazy busy, but we just can't say no. An assertive person can say yes, but they also can say no. Assertiveness means being proactive, being respectful, accepting your own limitations and those of others. 
forthrightly expressing your thoughts and opinions, focusing on the truth, confronting irrational beliefs. Boy, have we had an opportunity in the last year to confront people's irrational beliefs, but have we done it? Maybe not. It means making choices about the stewardship of our time, not letting other people dictate it for us. An assertive person sets and maintains personal boundaries. And I don't know about you, but all of that sounds an awful lot like the life that Jesus lived, didn't it? Jesus was, as you might expect, an assertive person. There were times when he was passive, but also, and also when he was aggressive, but only in a way that ultimately leads to salvation. For the vast majority of the time, he was an assertive person. So, Lynn wanted to make sure that I would be able to explain all of his theoretical stuff to kids. So, kids, here, pay attention for a moment, okay? Let's illustrate this passive, assertive, aggressive thing by going to McDonald's together. I drive into the drive-through and I talk to the little box and I say I'd like a strawberry milkshake. And they ask, would you like that with whipped cream? And I say no, because that's just ridiculous. Uh, it is. <laughs> because it all just ends up, you know, kind of settling at the bottom and thing after you sucked all the milkshake out and then who wants to just have whipped cream when you can have milkshake. Why don't they mix that? Oh, no, oh, sorry, I'm getting a little aggressive here. So, so I ordered my strawberry milkshake, and they say yes, and they tell me this is going to cost way more than it ought to, and I drive up to the window, and they hand me a milkshake, and I put it in my mouth, and I take a swig, and it's chocolate. What do I do if I'm passive? If I'm passive... I just drive away. On the inside, I'm going, yes. but I don't say anything that. I don't ask for I, I just drink my chocolate milkshake with whipped cream. Thank you very much. <laughs> On the other end of the spectrum at McDonald's, there's the aggressive person. Walks up to the counter, says, I'd like a 10-piece McNuggets. They get a box of McNuggets. They go sit down, and they open it up, and the first thing they do is count the McNuggets. And there's only nine. And I am not making this up. What I'm telling you next, I'm not making up. This actually happened in, the present, in my presence with a friend of mine. So he called over the manager, and he says, do you always cheat your customers like this? Now, the passive person with a the milkshake, they go around angry on the inside and is just chewing them up and making them not a nice person, right? The aggressive person that has just accused the manager of cheating everybody that comes in the store, you know, if I'm that person, I'm never going to go back to that McDonald's because I have just made an enemy by accusing somebody of cheating everybody instead of just miscounting, I've made myself an enemy, and Lord only knows what they would give me next time I ordered. Right? The third option is assertive. So I ask for my strawberry milkshake, and it ends up chocolate, so I park the car, and I go in, and I said, uh, I, I paid for a, a, a strawberry milkshake, and I really like strawberry milk. I really like McDonald's strawberry milkshakes, but I was given a chocolate one, so could I 
exchange this for the, the one that I ordered. Thank you very much. So politely, you just say, this is what I ordered. This is what I paid for. I'd like to have that, please. And I suspect that if that is your response, what you're really doing is you're probably reminding the staff there, oh, that's right, I need to really listen. Next time, I don't want to make that same mistake, so I'm going to listen carefully, and I'm going to make sure they get what they wanted, right? So whereas passive or assertive can destroy relationships with McDonald's employees, being assertive perhaps builds that relationship. Anyway, back to the Bible now. So the Beatitudes teach us that meekness, properly defined, is a defining quality in the kingdom of God. Paul, writing to the Galatians, tells us that gentleness is a result of our being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Stephen ministry training that I've received gives practical help in being able to recognize the value of assertiveness, the value of kingdom relationships. We may not have anger management issues, but I'm sure that all of you during the course of my description of passive and aggressive and assertive behavior had a little twinge on the inside. Oh, that's kind of me. I probably need to work on that. The book title is Speaking the Truth in Love by Kenneth Hauk and another woman whose name's I, name I can't remember, who is now mad at me for not telling her, never mind. <laughs> Let's bow our heads and pray. Have you ever prayed asking God to make you a meek person? Have you ever prayed asking God to make you a gentle person? If you're like me, I ask God to make me a strong person and a faithful person and a courageous person. But honestly, I don't know if I've ever asked God to make me a meek person. But Lord, that's what we're asking for today. Lord, we want to be constructive, faithful members of your kingdom family. We want to inherit the earth. We want to, to be filled with eternal life. We want to be your sons and daughters, living productive lives as ambassadors and partners with God in ruling this kingdom. And so, Father, we pray that you would make us meek, that you would make us gentle, that you would make us assertive people. Lord, we have a week ahead of us. Kids settling into school, meeting new people, having new teachers, potential kingdom relationships. Lord, we pray that you would help us by the grace of God to be angry at the right time and in the right ways and never to be angry at the wrong time and in the wrong ways. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to be able to say what we want and what we mean. 
Father, we thank you for the extraordinary privilege you give to us of being your kingdom partners. And all along this sermon series through the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, we, we have been praying that you would continue to fill us with your spirit and continue to overflow in our lives and overflow through our lives with qualities of the Holy Spirit. Your godly qualities made real in the way we talk and think and act. Lord, have your way this week. Make us teachable. Keep us humble. Take control of our lives, Lord. For your glory and your glory alone and all of God's people say, Amen.